having concluded our, our series on repentance through the blessed and holy season of Advent, where we focused on Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol, to see the various aspects of repentance that our Lord calls us to bring to Him, to live in, so that He heals our lives. I've really kind of been scratching my head on where do we go from here. I mean, I know a trajectory, but specifically, where do we go from here starting in the new year? And that came uh, last Sunday when I preached on the name of Jesus, the most holy name of Jesus, at the feast of the most holy name of Jesus. Let me remind you a few things that I brought to the table because they're going to be the platform, the foundation for what we're talking about today. We mentioned in that homily, in in the midst of that feast, that the name of Jesus, Yeshua, who remembers what it means? God saves. God saves. And the other word? Our deliverer. He delivers us. Right. Yeshua. In Hebrew, remember who the Old Testament name is? Yeshua is Joshua. Joshua. And we were reminded that Joshua, Moses led the people, God's people Israel, out of captivity into the wilderness. Okay? But it would be Joshua who would lead the people out of the wilderness through the waters of the Jordan, prefiguring baptism for us, through the waters of the Jordan and into the promised land. So he would deliver them from the wilderness to the promised land, but there was another aspect of deliverance. And that other aspect of deliverance was that God himself would hand every enemy that they had right into their hands. He would grant them victory when they never should get victory. I'll give you the first example that they come to, the city and people of Jericho. It's one of the most famed stories, right? Most everybody knows the story of Jericho where they come to this impenetrable, impenetrable city with incredible walls and a people totally protected inside. The Israelites hardly had weapons for crying out loud. These were not people that were like the, the Egyptians, Or like what we would see later with the Romans that had all of these up-to-date military weapons to use. And yet, God delivered the city to them. They followed Him, but who was their victory? God was. Always God was. Okay, And so Joshua, our Lord's name, is named Yeshua. For He is our Savior and He is our Deliverer. And I spoke in the sermon about the reality when we look at the Gospels that every time Jesus encounters the demonic, the demonic never stands a blessed chance. They always bow to the authority of Christ, for Christ is present. And they know that Christ is God. And when He speaks and what He speaks, they themselves have to bow to. And when He says, come out of a person, they must obey. And when He says, flee to this, they must obey and do what He says. There is never a time, ever, that the demonic has ever had or will ever have authority over the Holy Trinity. Ever. Lock that in. Because it has to do with us. I also spoke about the fact that just like Jesus has the authority, Yeshua, Jesus, is the sharer of His authority. And the only way we can be saved is for Christ to share with us His divine power, His grace, and His authority. 
And Jesus did that when He sent out the 70 disciples in the Holy Gospels. We see this. He tells them, don't take much with you. Go off into the nearby villages and towns. Don't take much with you. And when you get there, proclaim that the peace of God has come and that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And where there are sick, what does He tell them to do? Heal them. He doesn't say, even though it is Christ that heals them, listen to the language. He commands them to go and heal. Okay? So they go into these neighboring towns and villages... And I love the praise and the joy and the response that comes back to Christ from these 70 disciples when they return to Him because they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to who? Us. In Your name. Do you see that? Even the demons submit to us. Where those who Christ had given His authority and given His divine power went. They stood no more a chance, the demonic, against those believers, those disciples, than they did with Christ. Why? Because Christ was with them. Remember the other name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're told about. And His name shall be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. One of the challenges I brought in that sermon that really had me seeking God, a little bit of repentance, no, a lot of repentance, is knowing this truth. Because you you can't twist this. This is truth. God is with us. He's given us His authority. And Satan and the demonic have no way to win against us because of that. Because we are... In His name, if we'll live there. If we'll live there. Knowing this truth, I started, the question started coming to me. What excuse do I have to keep falling to my besetting sins, if that's true? What excuse can I give to continue to choose to go a certain direction when not only my flesh, but a very real enemy that our St. Peter says lives soberly against and aware of, because he's wandering, seeking the destruction of our souls. What excuse do I have knowing that I have been given all of the authority of Christ, knowing that Emmanuel, God, is with me, and knowing that He is my Savior, and knowing that He is my Deliverer, which means He can deliver me out of anything that Satan tries to put in my mind. Yes? What excuse do I have to keep going that direction? It's a real challenge to me. And I'll offer that up to think, and we're going to look at this today. And I gave you the words of St. James from St. James' epistle, St. James in chapter 4, that said this very plainly. He instructs the church. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will what? He will. It doesn't say he might sometimes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And here's the choice. And we're going to talk about this in this diagram up here. Here is where we are partners with Christ, sharers with Christ in His divine authority over all things. 
We have the choice in the moments of temptation. We have the choice in the moments when we have things hit our lives. We have a choice as to where we're going to direct ourselves. Are we going to draw near to God in those split-second moments? Are we going to draw near to God? Because if we do, He will what? Draw near to us. When we sense that absolute profound attack from the enemy trying to get us to go a direction we know will separate us from God, will we command Him to flee in the authority of the name of Christ? Or will we just let it be like our minds be a passing gate where thoughts come, we just simply do? Resist the devil, he will flee. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And today, we are going to talk about the spiritual warfare of our thoughts. Because make no mistake, it is spiritual warfare. The church fathers talk about this endlessly. Endlessly. We'll look at some of that as well. Let me me give you, I want to offer you, St. Paul's teaching on spiritual warfare. This is what St. Paul says. He says, for though, and pay attention to these words, there is a, Paul writes so beautifully. I know that his sentences seem to look like paragraphs. And it's true, when Paul writes, the man never was taught there's a period that you can use. (laughs) Right? It's true. But listen to it because he sets up his his explanation by the Holy Spirit of truths for the church so particular and if you pay attention you really start falling into his form of writing and can grasp it listen to what he says about spiritual warfare for though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Allow me, if you will, to go point by point so that you see very clearly what the fathers teach St. Paul is saying and what he is indeed saying. Number one, he says we do not war according to the flesh. It's very important to understand. What does this mean? The fathers teach us this. The fathers say that St. Paul is stressing That there is most certainly a war. The battle between us and a very real enemy. Again, no different than I said St. Peter said, what St. Peter taught us when he said, be sober, be vigilant, because your enemy, very real, your enemy wanders seeking the ruin of souls. This is an active enemy that comes against us in the moments of our lives. St. Paul is saying there is a battle, there's a war. But we do not war according to the flesh. And it's important to understand what this means. In a way it's very simple, but I really want you to get the concept. We don't war according to the flesh. By flesh he means this. The weakness of our humanity. Left alone without the divine grace of God. Left alone without power and authority being shared to us, humanity stands no chance against their enemy. And Paul says, we don't war like that. This is not how we battle. Recognize, my friends, recognize, church, he's saying, we don't battle in the weaknesses of our flesh. 
Number two, he says, because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. What he's saying there is the same thing. The weapons that we use against our enemy, and that enemy can be Satan, the demonic. The enemy can be our own brokenness. Understand that. Because this is what Satan does. He comes in and he tweaks the brokenness right where he knows the weak link of the armor is. And he comes in, he he tweaks it to lead us to actions and thoughts that separate us from life and power and holiness and righteousness. But he says our weapons, just like we don't battle from the weakness of our flesh alone... We also don't use weapons that humanity would use that have no prayer to win the victory. That's the message that he's giving. Rather, listen to what St. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are. He says they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The weapons that we have by Christ being with us. The weapons that we have by the authority and the divine grace and power that we have been given. He says they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. What strongholds? Well, first of all, think of strongholds. Again, if you don't get this, you need to see this. Paul is making a parallel between what we face in this life in the new covenant being filled with God and what his Hebrew people faced when they entered into the promised land and were clearing it out. They faced Jericho. Their weapons couldn't take down the wall, yes? Because their weapons were carnal. They couldn't war just with their own flesh because there weren't enough number of them nor strength of them not only to break through the walls but wipe out that people. You see the parallel? And yet Paul is saying just like that, just like as in Jericho, the strongholds came down. Our weapons are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. Let me ask you a question. Think for just a second. What strongholds in our practical life, what strongholds do you think Paul may be referring to? What does that mean to you? That our weapons are mighty for the tearing down of strongholds. Think of your life, think of the lives of others. What strongholds? Prayer. What are the strongholds that are being torn down? That's by prayer. Or well, getting you know, to prayer. Satan is trying to tear down our ability to pray. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Good. What else? Worry. Worry. Anxiety. Anxiety. Worry can be a stronghold in the human person's life. A devastatingly strong stronghold in the human person's life. Chuck, what would you say? Oh, just our bad habits and our constant sins. Yeah, yeah. The, those besetting sins are strongholds. You ever thought about repentance? That is the fellowship with God that is repentance. When we repent, are we not tearing down strongholds within ourselves? If, if, if we have been brought into the promised land, and that promised land, the Holy dwells in us and He's bringing us, this is the kingdom of God and we're moving always towards the kingdom of God eternal. That there is a bit of cleaning that has to be done. There's a bit of ridding of our enemy within that has to be done. Anxieties, bad habits, our sinful patterns, our besetting sins. Very good. How about woundedness? 
How about those of us, which are most of us, that have been tagged with woundedness at some point in our lives that becomes a stronghold in our life, giving us a false identity, living from a false life because we've been so damaged by things that have happened to us or things we've chosen to do, create woundedness in it. Is that not a stronghold? And yet the weapons of our warfare are what? Mighty for the pulling of all of them down. All of them. So you get what he says there. Secondly, he says that they are mighty for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now this is a fascinating statement. Our weapons are mighty for casting down arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I want to help you with this. To understand what Paul is saying there, we have to go back to the original deception in the garden. In the garden, we would all agree that God had set up this absolute perfection. He places as the pinnacle of that creation man and then woman into that and joins them together to enjoy and to rule over and to learn how to become more like the one who created them. Not only that, He gifts them with Himself. He fellowships with them. He walks in the garden in the cool of the day, right? We hear this stuff. So this is what he set up. And God, in his wisdom, tells Adam not to eat of a particular tree. Then he says, Adam, if you eat of the particular tree, you're going to die. This is God's truth being conveyed to Adam. What is it that Satan strikes at? He creates an argument that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. Do you see that? What's the argument? Adam, or he's actually Eve. Eve, I know, go eat of this tree. And Eve said, no, no, God said I'll die. So she right then is standing in the knowledge of God, yes? Yes. What's the deception? Eve, if you eat of that, you won't die. You'll become like him. Which is exactly what Satan knew God wanted for Adam and Eve. But he said, you eat of this tree, take it into your own hands. You depart the knowledge of God and do it your own way, the way that I've twisted for you, and you'll get there. Do you see how he created an argument, implanted it in Eve's mind, that exalted or attempted to exalt itself above the knowledge of God? Do you get that? The thought created action, which was vice rather than virtue. And she ate, and then she fed Adam of that, saying, eat this, we'll become like God. They did, and it drove them apart from life itself, life himself, God. You see that? When Paul says, our weapons against our very real enemy are mighty for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I tell you what this means is multiple things. It is the very things in your life that have caused you to develop strongholds that we need to tear down by these mighty weapons. Because Satan comes in and tweaks us and says, this tree is good, go eat of it. When God has said, this tree will lead to death. I don't care whether, you name any temptation that we have, it's pointing to a tree saying, hey, this is good. That's what Satan does. Exalting and putting that argument into our minds that tries to exalt itself against the knowledge of God because we know darn well 
If we are in Christ and have been raised into the church and are growing in the church, we've come to know that if I do this, it's damage. You take all the things that are being twisted in our culture right now. I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Self-definition of sexuality, the definition of what marriage is. To say that marriage is good between a man and a man and a woman and a woman is, is literally listening to Satan say, go eat of that tree because it's good when the knowledge of God has created things and said, this is the way of salvation. Do you see that? I could use so many arguments in our culture of Satan throwing and hurling at us arguments that try to exalt themselves, those arguments above the knowledge of God so that we follow him. And yet St. Paul is saying, St. Paul is saying that the weapons we have in Christ and His authority and grace are mighty for casting them down. And that's casting them down, not only to tear down the strongholds that have already built up, but when those temptations, when He feeds us those incredibly twisted arguments, that in those moments we stand in the authority of Christ and we say, no, no. You know, I'll give you an example. You do believe, as the Scriptures tell us, and we even see in the Gospels, that Jesus Christ suffered every temptation that we could ever be tempted with, yes? Um, In fact, I would take you to the most, I think, visual scene that you have in Holy Scripture of Satan directly casting arguments at Jesus Christ for this very purpose. And it's when he was tempted in the desert after 40 days of fasting after his baptism. When Jesus was baptized, he was led into the Spirit for, in, by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days where he ate nothing. He fasted and relied upon his Father in the humanity that he had taken upon himself. Satan comes to him after 40 days and he knows how hungry Christ is. Let's listen to the temptations and let's listen to the authority. Satan comes to Jesus in that great physical hunger. And what's the first thing he says? If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. His temptation was for Jesus to take matters into his own hands. Rather than his perfect reliance by his will on his heavenly father. And Jesus responds, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What you have is an argument cast against Jesus, and Jesus, who is God, responds with the truth of God. And he denies the argument. And he continues on in his authority. Secondly, Satan takes him to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. He says, cast yourself down for it is written. Now listen to this. Not only is Satan creating an argument, he's using scripture to use an argument to go above the knowledge of God. By the way, every heresy, every heresy, when you look at the first seven ecumenical councils, every heresy that ever came against Christ and his church was founded in scripture. Every one of them. Because that's what Satan does. And so Satan uses Scripture. And he says, cast yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you and in their hands they'll bear you up. Jesus answers with Scripture, knowing where Satan is going and says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord thy God to the test. Hmm. 
He stands his ground. The final temptation. Satan takes him to the top of a high mountain and shows him all of the world's kingdoms and says, Worship me and I will give you all of them. He's tempting Christ in His flesh with material power. He's tempting Him with finite power. But it is power that He's tempting Him with. And Jesus answers, listen to these words. And remember what we said, St. James said. Jesus' answer to this was, Away with you, Satan. He told Satan to flee. Away with you. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. And Satan had to leave. Away with you, Satan, the authority of Christ. My friends, you and I have been given the authority to command, and the demons must respond. Next in Paul's list. Our weapons are mighty. And here's where we get practical. Our weapons are mighty for, the bring, for bringing every thought into captivity. Our weapons are mighty for bringing every thought into captivity. The fathers teach us so harmoniously that right here, thought, we're going to go through this whole thing in a minute. Thought is the Forever in this earth battlefield of the Christian. All of our warfare is here. It's won and it's lost here in the thought. The word for thought that the church fathers use and found so often in Scripture... Funny looking words, equally funny sounding, logizmi. Okay, all of us understand that there is a point of conception of a child, right? When the egg is fertilized and right then and there, life begins. It's the, it's the birth right there of life, creation of life. I want you to think of the logizmi as the birth of thought. Thought starts somewhere, Yes. Yes. It's the pinprick moment in our lives, in our existence, in the moments and days of our lives. Logizmi, these thoughts, are the pinprick birth that Paul is saying. He's saying take those thoughts captive. Why is he saying take the pinprick birth of the thought captive? Because he knows if we don't take thoughts captive, what's going to happen? They're going to take us captive. They're going to take us captive. Hands down, there's only two things that are going to happen here. And the best and most strategic point to walk in the authority of Christ and to wage war is when the the thought has just entered. But let's talk about how thoughts begin. If we look at the process, all the thoughts that we have, they begin by either an internal influence within ourselves or an external influence, something comes at us. We hear it, see it, smell it, touch it, read it, think about it. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's, and sometimes it's both internal and external, but there is some form of influence that causes the birth. Okay? Right? Does that make sense? Think about the temptations you fall to. You know it begins somewhere. You can probably clock what it was that introduced the temptation to your mind. Okay? That's what we're talking about, this influence. Influence. 
And I want to be very clear that here and here, the influence and the pinprick birth of thought is not sin. It's not sin. It's influence. It's the beginning of something. Where does sin, and remember how we define sin in the church, missing the mark. What's the mark? The virtues of Christ, who Christ is. Our salvation is being made like Him. That's the mark, right? When does thought become sin? When we don't take it captive and we let it fester. Why do I say that? Why, why is sin not only relegated to action of vice? Because Jesus said he who has committed adultery in his heart has committed it. It doesn't mean someone's been tempted. It means someone that takes the thought of that and lets it fester in themselves. We've missed the mark because we've not walked in the authority that Christ has given us over our thought life. Does that make sense? So I want you to see that a lot of people, a lot of people I find walk in shame because they think just because they have a thought and they keep having these bad thoughts, they walk in shame because they feel it's sin. It's not. The, our enemies just introduced ourselves, whether it's our own flesh or Satan and the demonic or a mixture of both. All that that thought presents is the battlefield is set. You get that? Using Paul's warfare terminology. Isn't isn't shame uh, part of the sin of pridefulness? It it is indeed a part of the sin of pridefulness. More anything, I always like to say it this way, shame is satanic. and, And you can never find shame that is anything holy. Okay. Shame divides us from God. And there is such a fine line. And this is, uh, to be honest with you, this is part of the battleground of thought in all of us. There is such a fine line between shame that divides us from God. You've heard me speak about this before, just like going back to the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, what did they, they, when God came calling for them, what did they do? They hid themselves. They hid them. Why? Why? They're, because they, were, they fell to the second deception of Satan that you have sinned. How dare you go before God? Shame always separates us from God. There is no holiness and righteousness in shame. The fine line between, there's a fine line between shame and mourning our sins. I mourn my sins. When Jesus reveals to me and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is upon me that I've done something destructive to my soul or destructive to the soul of another, there is a right mourning that is a holy thing. Again, you've heard me say this many times. It's that Isaiah experience. In the light of perfection, Isaiah saw, I'm a man of unclean lips. What did he do? He he mourned. He fell down before... He didn't run away from God. That would be shame. He fell down before God. What did the tax collector do in the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? He didn't run away from God. He came in his woundedness, his grief within his soul, and he cast himself down before God saying, God, forgive me, a sinner. 
that's righteous and healthy mourning over what God has showed us because everything God shows us about ourselves is for one reason and one reason only. For us to see it, bring it to Him, so that He ultimately heals it and relieves us of that. Right? Okay. Makes sense, Marilyn, on the shame front? So you're absolutely right. <clears throat> what was the question? <laughs> what did I ask? Or were you just asking a question? You just asked a question. Thank you. All right. My sin is that I distracted you. But... We'll talk about that later, Marilyn. <laughs> <laughs> um, Father, may I ask you a Absolutely. I'm a little confused because I also hear St. Paul saying that out of the heart comes such things as, and then he has, okay, so... Internal influence. All right. That's it. So how's the biblical word heart um, with logismi? Okay. Logismi is specific to thought. Out of the heart thoughts can come. That the birth of a thought can begin in our broken, unhealed portions of our soul that comes out. That produces, or Satan uses and tweaks and produces the birth of a thought that wants to lead, exalt itself above God and lead us in division from God. Does that make sense helping separate the two? Because yes, you're spot on. As we are still being healed of Christ, there are still areas of our soul that will work against us. And produce these things. Mike? Uh, I think the word desire is a very important word in these thoughts because desire feeds those thoughts and those desires are in your heart. Yeah. And thoughts and desires, by the way, we, and yeah, we're going to go ahead and go there. Let's look at the thought. One of two things is going to happen. If we're going to take the thought captive, which we're told we have authority to do, if we're going to take the thought captive, we are going to feed this process with Christ Himself. We'll talk about different ways to do that in a minute. Because every thought, from thought to action, requires feeding, Mike, like you're saying. So we're either going to feed it with Christ... And all that we're going to bring him into the moment, bring him into the picture, and let him reign in my thought. Which is going to produce us walking in his authority, victory, and life of virtue. Or with that thought, I am not going to bring Christ into the picture. I am going to feed it with the brokenness of my soul and maybe other things. And it is going to produce something that is dangerous, destructive to my soul. Okay? We said it ourselves. Either one of two things. We're going to take it captive or it's going to take us captive. And then actions will be produced from it. So this brings up the question. Let me ask your thoughts. Pardon the pun. <laughs> Let me ask your thoughts. What can we do? Let's say we... I'm sorry, let me back up. One of the first things we have got to develop the discipline in is to see the thoughts at their earliest moments. Some thoughts, which lead to our besetting sins, they become so much a part of us, we don't even see the pinprick thought. The birth. It's already made half its way to action before we even get to it. So part of the spiritual disciplines in bringing Christ into the picture is backing up that time frame. 
to recognize more clearly how when we see the birth of a thought that is trying to exalt itself above God and lead to sin. What can we do? What kind of things, I'll open this up, can we do to bring Christ into the moment of the, log- of the logismi? Cross ourselves. Make the sign of the cross. It's not magic. It's very real. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk about that in a minute. In those mo- By the way, not just once. There are times if I'm wrestling with something, I will keep making the sign of the cross until I'm at peace again. What else? Sign of the cross. Lovely. Perfect. Yes. The name of Jesus prayer. The Jesus prayer? Absolutely. Quote scripture. Go and read it and say it out loud. You know, sometimes, my friends, in this Western world, we're so mental. Some of you more mental than others. No. We're so in here. Everything is processed in the internal mind. The reality is God's given you actions, a voice, a body, vocal cords, breath, lungs, force from them. Read the scripture out loud. Come against your own brokenness. Come against your enemy. You know, when Jesus Christ cast out demons, he didn't think it. What did he do? When Jesus created the world, he didn't think it. What did he do? He He spoke it into being. And you're created in His image and now filled with Him. Right? When He battled the enemy in the wilderness. Say it again. When He battled the army in the wilderness, yeah. He didn't think it. No. He spoke against everything that was exalting itself above God. Against Satan. Very good. Yeah. Father, people have asked me one time or another about, you know, what do I do? What do I do when I'm at this, you know, this terror thing? And the thing that I have said to them is just repeat out loud, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Curie. Lord have mercy. Keep saying the curie. All of these things are, yes, Gary, perfect. I have a question, sir. Yes. Like, um, you may have mentioned Adam and Eve, and, you know, Adam fell, and he says because of Eve, but, like how Satan didn't come directly against Adam, he, he came to Eve. And I don't know if that was a weakling because maybe, I guess back to your question, like maybe I, I don't even know that I love these things that's wrong that's maybe internal in me. Yes. So what I ask God for is this light or discernment or something because I may yes. apply to any of It's not because I, I hate the thing, you attack me against something I hate. Yeah. You're on to something. You're on to something that, I'll, let's go ahead and go there because this is good. It is the precursor to even this. It's understanding all of this, the way that Christ sees it. My friends, if we are not, and I was going to go there towards the end, but you brought it to a good point right here. I promise you this. If you or I, if we are not living a life of fellowship with God in prayer, which means prayer, the Holy Scripture, everything that we talked about in prayer, even in this class, just in the fall or in the winter, early winter. If we're not bathed in fellowship with God, living in Him and from Him, and asking Him to share His mind with us, His heart with us, if we're not doing that, we don't have much of a prayer at this. But if we are walking in fellowship all our days with God, what God does when we move towards Him, He moves towards us. And when He moves towards us, He illuminates us with everything. Gary, all the shadows that you feel like you might have, right? 
all the things, lack of discernment you might have, to, and not even knowing I loved something. All of that gets exposed through an active relationship with the Holy Trinity through Christ by the Holy Spirit. If we're living there, then we see much more clearly, much more speedily, and we know how because we've got the mind of Christ and how to deal with that logismi pinprick thought, right? So very good. I'm glad you said that. Yes. Good. No, go I guess I don't understand if you said that Christ said if you think of adultery or commit adultery, how is thought? Not so I, said, I didn't say think. I said if you if, if you have a, if it, if you have if you look at the language of what Christ said. Tempted by authority. We're talking about the difference between temptation and letting thought fester in the heart. Committing it in the heart is this. I'm tempted. And I let myself, my mind, my heart, I let it gravitate, continue to gravitate towards... So you let it go past. Correct. Which is exactly why I said that everything prior to this, everything including the logismi temptation beginning thought is not sin. But it's when we do not take it captive and we let our hearts follow that which exalts itself against God, that it then becomes sin. Missing the mark. Good all question. That, all that happens in about a nanosecond. Yeah, yeah, you've got about a nanosecond to deal with it. No. <laughs> right. I like that. It's true. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things about all this that I keep thinking about is something my father confessor would tell me, and I tell my oldest daughter when she has thoughts like being scared of something, yeah. that you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Nice. <laughs> so nice. I think it's, I mean, like... Did everybody hear that? Did y'all hear that back there? Yeah. No nests in the hair, people. <laughs> Jeff, especially you. <laughs> All right. At, at, what, at what point is so did Adam and Eve recognize the snake as being Satan? Good question, and I can't answer that. Well, it's only mentioned one time in Scripture. When did they? Re- I don't. Do, and, and, and we don't even know that, that they did. There's never an answer, and I've never seen, believe me, if anybody sees a writing of the fathers that sheds some light on this, I've just not seen it yet. But uh, we, we don't have any indication that they had knowledge that that was Satan. Right, it's now, only mentioned one time yeah. in Scripture, and that's yeah. it. Right? What was the question you uh, How do we know, how, at what point did Adam and Eve know that the serpent in the garden was Satan? And we don't know. I had heard of this question before, and also that there's really not a definitive answer, mainly because one of the first things that Satan uses back at Eve is just to insert a little bit of doubt of did God really did God say? really say? They caught immediately. Is that her really the truth? Questioning yeah. what she already believed, yeah. and that was really her moment that she missed to recognize yeah. what was going on and missed it. Right. Let me share something for you. All these things, the question on the table that led to all this wonderful discussion and questions was what can we do to bring Christ into these moments? We've heard sign ourselves with the cross. We've heard start to say the Kyrie. Holy Scripture, bring it in and say it out loud. Read it out loud. The Jesus, excuse me, the Jesus prayer. All of these things are absolutely wonderful. The bottom line is do it. If it's warfare, we are cooperating with the one who commands all of the angels. 
the one who has all of the authority over the tempter that has come against us. And we are promised and given authority to tell him, tell him to flee. And he has to do it. I want to read to you just a couple of quotes from the fathers. One is on the signing of the cross, the making the sign of the cross over ourselves. And it is from St. Athanasius, who I quoted from today in the homily, in the late 3rd century is when he, he wrote this about the signing of the cross. Listen to it. By the signing of the holy and life-giving cross, the devils and various scourges are driven away. For it is without price and without cost, and praises Him who can say it. The holy fathers have by their words transmitted to us, and even to the unbelieving heretics, how the two raised fingers and single hand reveal Christ our God in His dual nature, but single substance. The right hand proclaims His immeasurable strength, His sitting on the right hand of the Father, and His coming down unto us from heaven. Again, by the movement of the hands to our right, the enemies of God will be driven out. As the Lord triumphs over the devil with His inconquerable power. Do you hear that? As we make the sign of the cross... The Lord triumphs over the devil with his inconquerable power, rendering Satan dismal and weak. Let me read to you one last statement. Oh, I had a question. Yes. Is it uh, Catholics do the opposite? They do left to right. Left to right. What's we do. the significance? Well, you just heard the significance of the right to left. And thank God they're making the sign of the cross. You hear right. me? Okay, But why is it that originally, and as we continue in an orthodox, it is from right to left? You heard it just said. Christ sits at the mighty right hand of the Father, mm. the right hand of authority. The right hand is always shown authority and kingship and so on. Why would they switch it? I, you know, does know, I don't know the history on that. Maybe why did they leave us? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Say again. No, no, that's it. Yeah, that is it. I remember this. Lois, Lois has the answer for you. When the priest turned around, beginning with Vatican II, and began to do the whole liturgy, facing the people, they mimicked him. It was before that. Well, it was way before You know, before, it is true, but that was a big impact in, in, that, in the universal use of that. But no, you're right. It, I, but I, there, here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> but but now you know why in the beginning it was done right to left and why we continue right to left based on the teaching of St. Athanasius very early on in the church. And Father, I'm reminded, you know, just in that, with heard you say before, how we take the stuff of earth and it's met with... Sacrament. Heaven. Sacrament. Heaven and earth join in those physical actions. I'm going to read you one more quote and then we're going to go on, but it has been really, we're, we will continue on this. I want to read you a quote from St. Theophan the Recluse from un, his book, Unseen Warfare, which is all about spiritual warfare. I would encourage anyone to get this and read it. Listen to what he says about our spiritual warfare which is all of this, where the battlefield really is, right here in the thought. He said, You must never be afraid if you are troubled by a flood of thoughts that the enemy is too strong against you. 
that his attacks are never ending, that the war will last your lifetime, and that you cannot avoid incessant downfalls of all kinds. Know that our enemies, with all their wiles, are in the hands of our divine commander, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose, for whose honor and glory you are waging war. Since He Himself leads you into battle, He will certainly not suffer your enemies to use violence against you and overcome you, if you do not cross over to their side with your will. Did you hear that? If we remain in Christ, Christ does this. But if we give in, we subject ourselves to them and our weaknesses. He will Himself fight for you and will deliver your enemies into your hands. And He wills and as He wills, as it is written, and He quotes Deuteronomy, The Lord thy God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Huh? Ask the Lord to illumine you, please. And I pray for you every day on this. As a whole parish, I pray for you that you grow in such a desire to live in fellowship with God every day. Because if you do that, you will begin to see the deliverance of God like never before. John? Unseen power of warfare. Excuse me. Unseen warfare. St. Theophan, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N, the recluse. We do, thank you, Lucy. We do have a couple of copies in our church library, and you're welcome to check them out. I tell you, if you don't mind, just before we close, what I'll what I'll do, I, I'm going to get an email out to you with those two quotes about the signing ourselves with the sign of the cross and about warfare. Okay, will that be helpful? Let's stand.